Hello and welcome to An Atheist Reads the Big Book of AA. I'm your host, Josh. I appreciate you joining me as I explore new ways of making recovery more accessible to folks that may struggle with the God aspect of some recovery programs. All are welcome here. The primary purpose of this podcast is to read from AA literature through the eyes of an atheist and try to make sense of all the God stuff that's in there. Along the way, I hope to hear and share the stories of others while learning other ways of keeping sober. Hopefully, this results in others learning as well. So before I go anywhere with this, I just want to point out that uh, for the life of this podcast, I have been telling people that the uh, the interactive Facebook group was also titled An Atheist Reads the Big Book of AA, and that is not correct, because <laughs> I am bad at things. It's just Atheists in AA. So if you're looking for the more group, the interactive side of, you know, how to, how to reach some more people, um, there's 11 people currently, or 12, I think. So it's small still, um, but that's because I haven't been telling people the correct name for a few months, <laughs> and uh, and I'm sure it'll grow once people start finding the actual group. So that's there's that. And in other news, I started reading the book Daring Greatly by Brene Brown. I don't know if anybody's familiar with this person. She was uh, she was TED Talk internet famous for a minute uh, with a, a share regarding vulnerability and what that looks like in people and it it ended up coming from a place of what that looks like in herself and it was a it was a pretty it's a pretty good ted talk the book that i started of hers because i've heard great things about her writings uh this one deals with vulnerability shame and guilt and it really focuses on how we talk to ourselves how we digest that information the difference between saying to yourself i'm stupid for doing this thing and saying well, this thing was a mistake. I probably shouldn't have done that. I'm sort of thinking that last thought right now in conjunction with uh, everybody in the city of Portland getting their leaf blowers out at the same time and probably blowing on the same leaf. I don't know because it's been going on for an exorbitant amount of time and it's baffling to me. There aren't this many leaves in the city of Portland, but they've been blowing them all back and forth for at least the last two hours. So I have no choice <laughs> but to record this during a time when that might overlap and some of my thoughts here. So I apologize. I know this seems to be kind of an issue having background noises of different sorts, um, but uh, you know, I don't really know how much to change <laughs> to make that uh, a less of an issue moving forward. So I appreciate everybody bearing with me when I, as I work through that. So anyways, this Derek Greatly book is, uh, has been really good so far. I'm, I'm actually listening to it. I have a hard time reading still. So I've been listening to this while I have been working out or driving to and fro and it's been really good. It fits really well with like the things I struggled with in recovery. I mean, shame, guilt, vulnerability is all top top of the list stuff when it comes to trying to, um, you know, recover from traumas. Most of these stem from some sort of a trauma, like the way that we digest this stuff, the way that we look at uh, a thing and, and, you know, our bodies choose to feel shame for that. Um, and with, you know, with this has also been the lesson that, you know, emotions are a very body-centered thing. Our bodies feel emotions. We associate words to those emotions. We associate thoughts to those emotions. And the more I start digging into that, the more I start seeing that that this is very true for me, especially. But I mean, you know, this just seems to be what like the science is really going towards. I mean, that's why when you feel anger, you know, your heart rate increases. When you feel scared, like you feel these things. And what also comes with that is learning how to, instead of giving those words like, I'm so stupid, I'm such an idiot, 
try to describe the feeling, the sensation when I'm scared of uh, going into and this. I've talked a little bit about this when it came to my social anxiety. You know, Sam Harris had mentioned that the same chemical makeup that brings about the feeling of excitement also brings about the feeling of anxiety. They're, they're very closely related to where they're almost indistinguishable. And it's and it's like our traumas, our, our, our thoughts that we give those emotions, the shame, whatever, that ends up bringing up whether or not it's excitement or anxiety. There's people that go into social situations that are excited and they enjoy them. And the challenge of meeting new people and all that stuff, you know, it, it feels good to them. And the only difference is, is our relationship with that. I did not feel that way. I had a lot of fear and, and you know, poor self-talk around these situations. I still kind of do. You know, that vulnerability of going into a, a social situation is very difficult for me. So I drank through that. The more I drank, the less I cared, the more exciting it was for me to go into those situations. And... The more I I have explored that, the easier it has been for me to look at going into these situations as an exciting thing. Nothing about my chemical makeup has changed. It's not like I have suddenly physically changed the, you know, the chemistry behind that. I have changed my association with it, my relationship with it. This book's kind of helping to open that up and look at it maybe under the same lens, but, you know, the next like click on the microscope. So I'm going a little, a little deeper, getting a little closer to it. So if anybody is still kind of struggling with some of this stuff or just like is interested in learning more about how our body bodies react to these kinds of feelings, shame and guilt and vulnerability, or is struggling with just being vulnerable in general. And if even hearing the word vulnerability makes you go, Ugh, maybe check this book out. Um, it's very well written. If you are a listener of books like I am, um, the author herself reads the book and she's a very well-spoken person. So it's very easy to hear her tell this story of this book um, and to explore this stuff. And um, she has a lot of uh, a lot of data to back this up. So this isn't just like uh, a woo-woo sort of a self-help situation. You know, she's explored this topic for 10 plus years. Comes from that place, not of just having gotten the data, but realizing that it all applies to her as well. So it's, it's a very comfortable read so far or listen, I guess, so far. And I highly recommend it. I think it ties nicely in with uh, with recovery from from you know alcoholism or whatever drug of choice it was, um, and the underlying traumas that maybe caused the abuse of those things. So or helped cause. So there's that. That's something I've been really enjoying lately, and highly recommend. Something else I've been weirdly uh, sort of struggling with is you know at this point I've been I've been single for for two months. It's not very long. My brain is already starting to move into this like ah it's been forever and you're gonna die alone kind of stuff. This sort of thinking that that starts to to kind of creep its way in and a couple little bouts of loneliness, um, which I just don't think is something I'm ever gonna really get over. I think I'm always gonna kind of struggle with loneliness. So instead of doing something just terrible like like downloading a bunch of dating apps or or already trying to move on from this relationship that I that I haven't properly grieved or moved on from. Um, I started reaching out to friends again and really building on that. You know, I, I reached out to one of my friends wants to do some Dungeons and Dragons stuff. Um, so I signed up. To, we're going to start doing that on Sundays. I have uh, some other friends that meet for wings on Wednesdays. So I'm going to start doing that. I have uh, a friend who um, her daughter left to go to some families in Texas for a couple of weeks and she's going to have a hard time with that. So we've made some plans and, and that's helping a lot. You know, I think the more that I do that, the easier it's going to be to kind of just like ease into being comfortably single. Um, I have a job 
potentially lined up that will actually, I mean, I'm not going to retire early. Uh, it, it's only really, it's just a couple dollars more than I'm making now, but it has a lot of opportunity. It has a lot of uh, potential for me to find like what is my best fit in a company. I won't just be stuck with three people in an office and that's my only option is to work the job I'm working and not get paid enough to do it. So I am excited for that potential. Uh, and that sort of ties in with that loneliness as well. Like I think a good job that I can focus on that has actual like reward uh, to it, not just monetary, but you know, the potential for me to, you know, have it be my last job. That'll help with some of that too. Ultimately, that'll help with getting my finances in order, which going back to that kind of vulnerability and shame and guilt and like, you know, that whole subject, you know, there's, there's a lot of like potential for shame around my finances. I think the faster I get that stuff taken care of, um, and the, the more I focus on that stuff, the easier it will be for me to kind of duck and dodge that feeling, you know, and not, and not have it be an avoidance thing, but have it be, well, I'm solving an issue that is major. And, uh, rather than, you know, my, my credit score keeps going up, so I'm working on it, but I could do better. And that's, so that's, you know, that's the kind of stuff I've been focusing on, um, to keep me from feeling lonely. Cause that's a dangerous thing for me being lonely. That has been the, the core of so many things in my past that, you know, it's, it's led to drinking. It's led to jumping into relationships with people that were toxic. It's been What's led to me um, ultimately killing myself or trying to, you know, feeling unworthy and undeserving, all, all heavily tied to my my feeling of loneliness. Right now, it's a it's a loneliness that is very manageable and reasonable. And so instead of ignoring that and burying that or pretending like it's not a big deal, um, I, I'm jumping in front of it and uh, doing my best to practice the things I've talked about so much in this podcast with friends and, and in recovery is... Try to solve it before it becomes a major problem. All right. So I think I found a nice, calm, quiet moment in the day. I can move on to the Daily Stoic. This is going to be for December 7th. The cards were dealt. Think of the life you have lived until now as over and as a dead man. See what's left as a bonus and live, live it according to nature. Love the hand that fate deals you and play it as your own for what could be more fitting. Marcus Aurelius Meditations 7.56-57 We have an irrational fear of acknowledging our own mortality. We avoid thinking about it because we think it will be depressing. In fact, reflecting on mortality often has the opposite effect, invigorating us more than saddening us. Why? Because it gives us clarity. If you were suddenly told you had but a week to live, what changes would you make? If you died but were resuscitated, how different would your perspective be? When, as Shakespeare's Prospero puts it, Every third thought shall be my grave. There's no risk of getting caught up in petty matters or distractions. Instead of denying our fear of death, let's let it make us the best people we can be today. So I'm going to say that um, I have a different take on that original reading than the author. Uh, seems to be kind of a common theme with me. So what I took that to mean when it says, think of the life you have lived until now as over and as a dead man, See what's left as a bonus and live it according to nature. I, I was looking more at that as an ego death, not an actual representation of a physical mortality. We, while I agree the author makes some points about how we think about mortality, I think that's a separate thing than what Marcus Aurelius was really going for here. Especially if you consider how Marcus Aurelius really thinks about this stuff, at least in the readings we've you know had up until now. Coming into sobriety... Coming into sobriety on the heels of having just tried to kill myself, coming into this idea that 
I'm going to have to make some major changes and I am going to have to mourn my old way of life. The old me, the person that I'm leaving behind today uh, has to be mourned. And I kind of feel like that's more what this is really pointing towards. At least for me, that's how I'm going to take it. I had to kill the old me and I had to move on with the rest of my life as if as if it were, in fact, extra borrowed time. It was. It, it has been. A hundred percent has been. I, by all accounts, should not have lived past the point of my decision to end things. Basically happenstance. Just poor planning, right? So while, yes, I get to live life now knowing that this is basically bonus, it, it more came down to having to bury the parts of me that don't serve me anymore and bury the old way that I continued to be that led up to that point. You know, bury the way that I look at my mistakes in life, bury the way that I look at, you know, fault, bury the way that I look at my parents and my relationship with them, bury the way that I reacted to those things. And while there's still moments where I feel like some of that has cropped up, I still struggle with some of that stuff. That is like the ultimate goal for me is to bury that old me and move on as if the rest of this were a bonus. And I'm living, you know, freely with the knowledge that I came into this recovery tore the fuck down and I've had instances where I've been torn down even further and rather than build myself up in the image of who I was trying to build myself up as as I want to having the unique pleasure of building myself up any way that I want Uh, and that can only happen if I have that kind of ego death where I I allow who I was to just pass away and properly mourn that. Now, that's not to say that thinking about mortality and thinking about death, the physical death, isn't important, but I don't I don't feel like that kind of serves recovery as well as um, maybe it might serve some other aspects of our life. Not saying that recovery isn't life or that they're not tied together, but in specifics of, you know, AA or, or even outside of AA, just any kind of like secular recovery or any recovery, that idea that I have to bury that old person as if it were a completely separate entity. And this new person is in place of it. Or so that's the hope. So this week, we're going to be going over step two and tradition two. Uh, I'm going to do it in the same format as I did the first one. I think this is going to work out just fine. So step two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. My perception and my kind of practice of this step has really changed over the years, even really since I started this podcast, which has only been a few months. The more that I kind of consider this this idea of higher power and my lack of need for it, the more that my reliance on how this step is worded has changed, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And it, and it does not come from a place of like ego. I know that's the first shot people with religion or a higher power take is, oh, you're just so self-important that, you know, you don't even, you're you're above believing that. And it's just not, it's just not really how that works for me. I I know I've talked a little bit about this uh, in other previous podcast episodes. I think I'll just expand on it just a little bit before getting into the actual reading here and then, you know, going on with that. So the, the more that I have explored this, the more that I've really kind of dug in, the more that I realize that my lack of a higher power isn't suggesting that I have a power over certain things. My lack of need for this is really just my understanding of my place in the universe. You know, I'm just a meat sack in in a on a giant ball floating through space. Like I don't I don't feel like the sun has a power over me. It has influence over things that might occur in my life, 
but it doesn't decide things for me as a being or something. And I know this might even, it doesn't have to be a metaphysical thing. I understand good orderly direction, group of drunks, you know, a doorknob, etc. But, you know, I like how others have sort of relayed this kind of idea that my recovery is my own. My life is my own. My choices are, are my own. They ultimately, almost all of my choices, you know, they come down to bodily functions, you know, like when we really just whittle it down to its most basic sense. If emotions are, are body, they're bodily chemicals, really, they're just of the body. And all of our reactions are based on those emotions. And all of our reactions have a root, some sort of event that occurred when we were a kid, for the most part, or some sort of an emotional regulation or lack thereof, then, you know, that's where for me, the power lies getting to the meat and the core of who you are as an individual. And that is my restoration to sanity. I believe in that process and it's worked so well and has allowed me to find happiness I've never been able to find. And at no point have I looked at something else and thought, okay, you're in charge. You get to decide for me. There were instances where I felt like the group kind of was doing that, but I'm going to be real honest. There's people in my little AA circle that I haven't heard from in two years or more, you know? So it's not like, it's not like I'm handing it over to a bunch of strangers either. I don't just show up to a, a, a meeting and I'm like, all right, guys, well, let's figure out what I'm going to do with myself today. Let's figure out how my life's going to go. You know, I have beliefs. I have strong beliefs, but I don't think that that's a higher power either or a power over me. And I don't feel like I have a power over that. I think I just have things that influence and things that I influence, but it's ultimately, it's my choice to be influenced. And while sometimes my emotions can certainly control the narrative, kind of point me in a direction that maybe I might not have really wanted to go in, it's my choice to not get to the root of those. It's my choice to not to not really combat that stuff and dig into that. And if I'm not reading things or learning things or making progress on overcoming these traumas, then it's my choice that I react a certain way, ultimately. Not some doorknob or good orderly direction. It's not a power over me. I could at any point just choose to not follow that. So, you know, I know some people also have told me that I've overthought this and I am a chronic overthinker, but I think that the the resolution I've come to this brings me more peace than any of the other ones I've come across. Any of the other ways that I've looked at this. It all lies with me. It all lies within me. Not other people. Not external anything. Those might influence where I am currently in this in the state I'm in currently. Um, but they're, they don't have a power over me unless I, unless I give it to them, I guess. I mean, that's, that's kind of, it's kind of where I'm at with this step. Now onto the reading. The moment they read step two, most AA newcomers are confronted with a dilemma, sometimes a serious one. How often have we heard them cry out, look what you people have done to us. You've convinced us that we are alcoholics and our lives are unmanageable. Having reduced us to a state of absolute helplessness, you now declare that none but a higher power could remove our obsession. Some of us won't believe in God. Others can't, and still others who do believe that God exists have no faith whatever he will perform this miracle. Yes, you've got us over the barrel, all right, but where do we go from here? And that's, you know, that's that's a lot of what happens with some people that come newly to the program that are just basically broken. Like, it, it is odd to me 
that, you know, the idea is to be reduced down to nothing, not nothing, but reduced down to this idea that you're completely incapable of figuring this out on your own. And the only thing that's, that's going to be able to replace that is this external being, this external thing. And here, let us provide that for you. I get why people feel the cultiness of AA. And it is carefully worded as in, it's your choice what you believe, but you have to believe. You have to accept this higher power. Now, there was a guy on TikTok that was even telling people that. And that was the re- the interaction that me and him had, was you simply cannot do the steps without a higher power, without a, a willingness to accept a higher power into your life. And this is what's being told, you know, to newcomers. And that's unfortunate. It really is. I'm more than happy that some people have chosen a higher power for themselves, uh, but not so happy that that comes at the cost of letting people know that they don't have to have one. Uh, I'm glad Bill Wilson kind of moved away from that, but unfortunately the original you know, literature still continues to kind of harp on that, as we will see. Let's look first at the case of the one who says he won't believe, the belligerent one. See? We're fucking belligerent <laughs> already. Do, do I seem belligerent about my... Uh, lack of need for higher power in my re- my recovery. You know, I, I, I'm belligerent to those that tell me that I have to believe that I'm going to die miserable and drinking if I don't believe. I'm definitely belligerent to that narrative. But I, I can't really wrap my head around being like, I don't, I don't remember the last time that I have just decided to tell somebody that their belief in God was going to kill them. You know, <laughs> I can't remember the last time I was like, well, you believing in God is affecting me greatly. <laughs> you know, and and that's where I feel like so many people come from when they find out that I don't have a higher power. Like they have to fix that for me. They have to cure it for me. Uh, and, and somehow I'm belligerent. You know, we are belligerent. He is in a state of mind which can be described as only a savage. Fucking what? His whole philosophy of life in which he's so glorified is threatened. It's and that's it. That's not actually true for me. My whole my whole philosophy of life was was non-existent. And now that I have one, I see even more so that a lack of higher power is not not a struggle for me. I'm perfectly fine accepting that. It doesn't come from this place. And I feel that it's true for a lot of people. It's bad enough, he thinks, to admit alcohol has him down for keeps. But now, still smarting from that admission, he is faced with something really impossible. How he does cherish the thought that man, risen so majestically from a single cell in the primordial ooze, is the spearhead of evolution, and therefore the only god that his universe knows. Must he renounce all this to save himself? See, and that's that just comes back to this misconception about atheism, especially, I guess, my brand of atheism or even agnosticism. The idea that not, I don't think I'm a god in my own universe. That's the thing. I understand and qualify my insignificance in the whole order of things. My only influence in the world is is really you know, the small things around me that I choose to influence. But at the end of the day, 100 years, 1,000 years, fucking 20 years, like those influences may no longer even be around. They could be, they could be completely gone tomorrow. Like I identify that, accept it, and I'm not ruled by it. But this idea that, you know, they have with this 12 by 12 with, you know, Bill Wilson still misunderstanding atheism, I feel like just does a lot of damage. Really does. <laughs> At this juncture, as AA sponsor usually laughs, this, the newcomer thinks, is just about the last straw. This is the beginning of the end, and so it is. The beginning of the end of his old life, and the beginning of his emergence into a new one. Oh, that's funny, we just talked about ego death. His sponsor probably says, take it easy. The hoop you have to jump through is a lot wider than you think. 
At least I found it so. So did a friend of mine who was a one-time vice president of the American Atheist Society, but he got through with room to spare. This is such a weird paragraph. I feel like this kind of, man, Bill Wilson really fucking irritates me with this shit. Yeah. This is like a made up story, right? Like that's what this is kind of leading us. At this juncture, the brand new AA sponsor usually laughs and the sponsor's like, well, I just happen to know the person in charge of all atheists in America. And he came around and now he's a believer. He runs a full Catholic baptism church, blah, blah, blah. Like the fuck you did. <laughs> Who is this person, American Atheist Society, that just suddenly is a vice president of the, the whole group? He just he just is also happens to be a friend of this one spot. What the fuck? And he he figured out a way to believe with with uh, with room to spare. I don't understand how somebody supposedly could know any atheist and walk away writing some of this stuff. Uh, well, says the newcomer, I know you're telling me the truth. It's no doubt a fact that AA is full of people who once believed as I do. But just how in these circumstances as a fellow take it easy? That's what I want to know. That, agrees the sponsor, is a very good question indeed. I think I can tell you exactly how to relax. <laughs> you won't have to work at it very hard either. Listen, if you will, to these three statements. First, Alcoholics Anonymous does not demand that you believe anything. All of its 12 steps are but suggestions. Second, to get sober and to stay sober, you don't have to swallow all of step two right now. Looking back, I find that I took it piecemeal myself. Third, all you really need is a truly open mind. Just resign from the debating society and quit bothering yourself with such deep questions as whether it was the hang or the hen or the egg that came first. Again, I say, all you need to do is have an open mind. This is exactly what I read to people who tell me that I need a higher power, that it's in the literature, that in order to have any success in recovery or in Alcoholics Anonymous, that it's required. Because it fucking isn't. Now, I know the language of most of the material makes it very aggressively suggested. That is true. But if anybody's trying to pull that sober card bullshit on you and act like they're the arbiters of who gets to stay and who gets to go, just remind them that it's in the literature that we don't have to believe in a goddamn thing. It, we don't have to believe in fucking anything. I do agree. You don't have to swallow all of step two uh, at all, honestly, ever. Because these steps are a suggestion, and exactly what I told that guy on TikTok. If the steps are a suggestion, then parts of the steps are a suggestion. And you use what works for you and you leave the rest. It's really, really as simple as that. The sponsor continues. Take, for example, my own case. I had a scientific schooling. Naturally, I respected, venerated, even worshipped science. As a matter of fact, I still do. I'll accept the worship part. Time after time, my instructors held up to me the basic principle of all scientific progress. Search and research again and again, always with an open mind. When I first looked at AA, my reaction was just like yours. This AA business, I thought, is totally unscientific. This I can't swallow. I simply won't consider such nonsense. No, such nonsense. Then I woke up. I had to admit that AA showed results, prodigious results. I saw that my attitude regarding the, these had been anything but scientific. It wasn't AA that had the closed mind. It was me. The minute I stopped arguing... I could begin to see and feel. Right there, step two, gently and very gradually, began to infiltrate my life. I can't say upon what, upon what occasion or upon what day I came to believe in a higher power greater than, my, greater than myself. Fuck. Sorry. Struggling over some words here. But I certainly have that belief now. To acquire it, I had only to stop fighting and practice the rest of AA's program as enthusiastically as I could. Now, while I did not personally come to feel that I found a higher power, I do kind of believe... 
what they're trying to say. I'm picking up what they're laying down. Don't overthink it. No, it's funny that I would say that as an overthinker. It's a black belt and overthinking, but that is kind of the meat of it. Me realizing that I'm basically an insignificant speck in this whole like fucking, you know, play of life is allowing me not to overthink it. I don't need to know on a personal level why all this is happening, what's going to come next, how the world actually works, what happens when I die. I don't, I don't even really think about any of that stuff anymore. Not some, sometimes I do, you know, I like to discuss that stuff. I like to have interesting conversations about that stuff, but it's, it's not wrapped up in my core belief system. I don't then make decisions that are contingent on what I think happens to me when I die. I make decisions based on how I want my community to look, how I want the people around me to to look, you know, that's not to say that I decide for others what they should do for themselves. That's to say that I've learned that if I change who I am as a person, then I can influence those around me just by simply existing as a better version of myself. That's what I mean. And I'll know that I've made those choices when the people around me change, not necessarily who they are, but sometimes who who's actually there. New people come into my life and stay that maybe are a much better uh, reflection of the kind of person I am. That's more what I was meaning there. I don't obsess about this entity that I can turn these things over to. That isn't where my decision making comes from. It, it just sort of comes from the gut, to be honest, from that core primal set of feelings, fear and shame and guilt, but also happiness, joy and, and peace. And that comes from not overthinking it. The beginning of this, when I went back to AA and I started getting back into the program and I started following this stuff, once I, once I just wrapped my head around that concept that I've talked about before, that a group full of just complete miscreants, utter dysfunction, the absolute like textbook group of chaotic individuals that you could possibly get in a room together, came up with this program. Three years later, they were like, this has cured me of alcoholism. I am recovered. I'm going to present this as fact. I know this is going to work for the rest of my life. And then to have that actually end up being true, that is the simplest way that I can look at this program. And so that's kind of what I get out of these paragraphs right here is don't get stuck, if you can help it, on the intricacies. But don't don't overlook things that are of concern. Don't overlook things that are bothering you. Explore those things. Don't go into this blindly, which is kind of also what it's saying. Don't do that. But also don't get hung up on the small things. For me personally, I had to stop doing that because I would get up hung up on the tiny things and I would be like, well, that's enough reason for me not to do AA. I guess I'll drink for the rest of my life. You know what I mean? It's very easy for me to start like ruminating a thing into not working for me. When I explore this program, when I explore this book and I start really digging into the things that bother me or affect me, in a, pay, in a positive or a negative way, that comes from a place of open-mindedness. When I was closed-minded, I just accepted everything as it was in this book the first time I came into this program. I didn't push up against any of it. Mentally inside I was, but front-facing, I did not. That felt more closed-minded than what I'm doing now. So sorry, that was a little longer of a rant than I expected. This is only one man's opinion based on his own experience, of course. I must quickly assure you that AA's trend, innumerable paths, and their quest for life, or for faith. If you don't care for the one I've suggested, you'll be sure to discover one that suits if only you look and listen. Many a man like you has begun to solve the problem by the method of substitution. You can, if you wish, make AA itself your higher power. And that's kind of what I did when I first came into the program. I do, you know, if you do struggle with the concept that you do need a higher power, then I could start, you know, start there. 
There's a very large group of people who have solved their alcohol problem. In this respect, they are certainly a power greater than you, who have not even come close to a solution. Uh, surely you, ha you can have faith in them. Even this minimal of faith will be enough. See, now, having faith in the group, working its way through this program is not an indicator that I have a higher power. You will find many members who have crossed the threshold just this way. All of them will tell you that once across, their, their faith broadened and deepened. Relieved of the alcohol obsession, their lives unaccountably transformed. They came to believe in a higher power, and most of them began to talk of God. See, that's that we agnostic shit. <laughs> you just stick around long enough, son, and, and God will just find you. You'll just, you'll just suddenly believe. You just got to hang out in the rooms. And then, and then you'll really start to recover. Uh, consider next apply to those who had once had faith, but have lost it. There will be those who have drifted into indifference, those filled with self-sufficiency who have cut themselves off, those who have become prejudiced against religion, and those who are downright defiant because God has failed to fulfill their demands. Can AA experience tell all these they may still find a faith that works? Again, I feel like the whole purpose of me even starting this podcast is because like they seem to cover every facet of every potential type of belief except for a lack of one, like really actually explore a lack of one. They all came from this really weird place of just give it time, you'll believe. Sometimes AA comes harder to those who have lost or rejected faith than to those who never had any faith at all, for they think they have tried faith and found it wanting. They have tried the way of faith and the way of no faith. Since both ways have proved bitterly disappointing, they have concluded there is no place whatever for them to go. The, they use whatever in the weirdest places. The roadblocks of indifference, fancied self-sufficiency, prejudice, and defiance often prove more solid and formidable for these people than any erected by unconvinced, agnostic, or even militant atheist. Religion says the existence of God can be proved, the agnostic says it can't be proved, and the atheist claims proof of the non-existence of God. What? No. I, what? The agnostic says it hasn't been proven yet. Not, not that it can't be proven. The atheist claims that the current state of things is that there just is no God. What? <laughs> Sorry, I'm sort of really stuck on this. I don't remember this line. Religion says that there's no way to disprove God. Not that it, not that it can be proved. Not just that it can be proven, but that there's no way to disprove it. Ugh. Obviously, the dilemma of the wanderer from faith is that of found, profound confusion. He, he thinks himself lost to the comfort of any conviction at all. He cannot attain it in even a small degree, the assurance of the believer, the agnostic, or the atheist. He's the bewildered one. You know, this is a really rough little chapter for me. And honestly, the only reason why I'm even continuing on with it, that's how rough of a chapter it is for me, is because I think some of us are going to encounter those with faith or of a sort of like mishmashy, I don't know what I believe kind of a faith that this is describing. And I think it's beneficial to be able to talk to them as well. Uh, but that line pissed me off. I'm not going to lie. What a completely just absurd misunderstanding of the things that you're trying to teach people about. Like coming from a place of authority about a thing you just absolutely misunderstand. Maybe this book is more modern than I think it is. <laughs> Any number of AAs can say to be to say to the drifter, yes, we were diverted from our childhood faith too. The overconfidence of youth was too much for us. Of course, we were glad that good home and religious training had given us certain values. We were still sure that we ought to be fairly honest, tolerant, and just. 
that we ought to be ambitious and hardworking. We became convinced that such simple rules of fair play and decency would be enough. I have been in the rooms long enough to know that not very many people come from a background like that. As material success founded upon no more than these ordinary attributes began to come to us, we felt we were winning at the game of life. This was exhilarating, and it made us happy. Why should we be bothered with theological abstractions or and religious duties, or with the state of our souls here or the hereafter? The here and now was good enough for us. The will to win would carry us through, but then alcohol began to have its way with us. Finally, when all our uh, scorecards read zero, and we saw that one more strike would put us all out of the game forever, we had to look for our lost faith. It was in AA that we rediscovered it, and so can you. Now we come to another kind of problem, the intellectually self-sufficient man or woman. To these, many AAs can say, yes, we were like you, far too smart for our own good. We love to have people call us precious, precocious, excuse me. We used our education to blow ourselves up into prideful balloons, though we were careful to hide this from others. Secretly, we felt we could all float above the rest of the folks on our brain power alone. Scientific progress told us there was nothing man couldn't do. Knowledge was all powerful intellect could conquer nature since we were brighter than most folks so we thought the spoils of victory would be ours for the thinking the god of intellect displaced the god of our fathers but again john barleycorn had other ideas we who had won so handsomely in a walk turned into all-time losers we saw that we had to reconsider or die we found many in AA who once thought as we did. They helped us to get down to our right size. By their example, they showed us that humility and intellect could be compatible, provided we placed humil humility first. When we began to do that, we received the gift of faith, a faith which works. This faith is for you too. I like that they describe the intellectual as like, one, not, not similar to the atheist. Usually, those folks are one of them the same. But two is like just this, honestly... It almost seemed like Bill Wilson was describing it as himself. Like that's the, the plot of group that he came from. I will absolutely say that I will say that I, I had this struggle and have had this struggle and probably still have this struggle of, of thinking I, I am smarter than myself, thinking I'm smarter than um, the work that needs to be done, intellectualizing my feelings or over-intellectualizing my feelings when they are of just body and they should just be felt or thinking, or thinking that somehow... Because I know how this stuff works, that I've done the work, which is kind of worse. Yeah, and that that has precluded a lot of my life. Um, so I get I get where they're coming from with this one, and I I do think that if if you are coming into this as someone who maybe used to think that way, I'm guessing that by the time you've made it to this episode, you're at least open to hearing a different version of this. You know, like I would I would assume based on just the fact that you're still sticking around, that there's openness to hearing a different take. And that's really, and that I do appreciate what they're saying here in regards to that. Have that openness. You don't have to agree with everything that you hear. You don't even have to disagree with it. You just let it be and exist with it. And that's where I'm I'm really trying to come from, even reading this book, even though there's some stuff, it's like that previous sentence about the complete misunderstanding of either one of these groups. I can only be so open, you know? Another crowd of AA says, we were plumb disgusted with religion and all its works. The Bible, we said, was full of nonsense. We could cite chapter and verse, and we couldn't see the beatitudes for the begats. In spots, its morality was impossibly good, and others, it seemed impossibly bad. 
But it was the reality of the uh, religionists themselves that really got us down. We gloated over the hypocrisy, bigotry, and crushing self-righteousness that clung to so many believers, even in their Sunday best. How we loved to shout the damaging fact that millions of the good men of religion were still killing one another off in the name of God. This all meant, of course, that we had substituted negative for positive thinking. <laughs> After we came to AA, we had to recognize that this trait had been an ego-feeding proposition. In belaboring the sins of some religious people, we could feel superior to all of them. Ah, uh, well, you know, yeah, that's a way of, that's a way of looking at that. Moreover, we could avoid looking at some of our own shortcomings. Self-righteousness, the very thing that we had contemptuously condemned in others, was our own besetting evil. This phony form of respectability was our undoing, so far as faith was, was concerned. But finally, driven to AA, we learned better. So... Most of what was just read in that chapter is exactly what started to push me away from the idea of religion in general, and still stands as a reason why I don't really have a lot of respect for most religions. Now, some people that are in religions that happen to be good people, I think would happen to be good people if they were out of those religions. I don't think the religion gives them their morality. I think it gives them a tool to allow them to exact a certain kind of judgment on others. And... I'll probably stand by that one until I die. Um, as open as I can be, uh, the the uh, result of um, having looked into sometimes more cursory than others, different religions sort of all comes back to the idea that these these were all just tools to to get people to do what you want. Just looking in our own country, what what laws religions really fight for and want to impose on others, you know, what, what beliefs they want to push on others. Uh, so that stands and, and that's, that will stand for me until that ends. I don't look upon those that have a religion from a place of superiority. I think there's a lot of good reasons why people find religion. Uh, I do, uh, in fact, though, become belligerent when somebody's religion, uh, makes them feel like they can tell me what I can do with myself. That's, uh, that's a whole other conversation though. As psychiatrists have often observed, defiance is the outstanding characteristic of many an alcoholic. I was not defiant against religions because I drank, to be clear. So it's not strange that lots of us have had our day of defying God himself. Sometimes it's because God has not delivered us the good things of life which we specified, as a greedy child makes an impossible list for Santa Claus. Uh, same list. More often, though, we had met up with some major calamity and, to our way of thinking, lost out because God deserted us. The girl we wanted to marry had other notions. We prayed God that she'd change her mind, but she didn't. We prayed for healthy children and presented with sick ones, or not at all. We prayed for promotions at business and none came. Loved ones, upon whom we heartedly depended, were taken from us by so-called acts of God. Then we became drunkards and asked God to stop that, but nothing happened. This was the unkindest act cut of all. Damn this faith business, we said. And this is where I point out that this weird idea that if you beg the right way, then God will come and help you, which I sort of be, is backed up by this. It's a very weird concept to me. When we encountered AA, the fallacy of our defiance was revealed. At no time had we asked what God's will was for us. I'm sure people did. Instead, we had been telling him what it ought to be. No man we saw could believe in God and defy him too. Yeah, there we go. I can defy the image as long as I don't believe. Belief meant reliance, not defiance. In AA, we saw the fruits of this belief. Men and women spared from alcoholics' final catastrophe. 
We saw them meet and transcend their other pains and trials. We saw them calmly accept impossible situations, seeking neither to run nor recriminate. This was not only faith, it was faith that worked under all conditions. We soon concluded that whatever price in humility we must pay, we would pay. Now let's take the guy full of faith, but still reeking of alcohol. He believes he is devout. His religious observance is scrupulous. He's sure he still believes in God, but suspects that God doesn't believe in him. He takes pledges and more pledges. Following each, he not only drinks again, but acts worse than the last time. Valiantly, he tries to fight alcohol, imploring God's help, but the help doesn't come. What then can be the matter? It's interesting that this book comes from a place of all of these people can find the same result, given the fact that they still feel like a certain type of faith is required, which again, just sort of keeps certifying for me that no faith can also work. To clergymen, doctors, friends, and families, the alcoholic who means well and tries hard is heartbreaking riddle. To most AAs, he is not. There are too many of us who have been just like him and have found the riddle's answer. This answer has to do with the quality of faith rather than its quantity. This has been our blind spot. We supposed we had humility when really we hadn't. This, we supposed we had been serious about religious practices when, upon honest appraisal, we found we had been only superficial. Or, going to the other extreme, we had wallowed in emotionalism and had mistaken it for true religious feeling. In both cases, we had been asking something for nothing. The fact was, we really hadn't cleaned house so that the grace of God could enter us and expel the obsession. In no deep or meaningful sense had we ever taken stock of ourselves, made amends to those we had harmed, or freely given to any other human being without any demand for reward. We had not even prayed rightly. We had always said, grant me my wishes instead of thy will be done. So that, you know, that right there, in no deep or meaningful sense had we ever taken stock of ourselves. Made a, I mean, in no way had we done the work, whatever that work might be. I don't, then this is it. Like, I don't think there's anything really more to it. Stop being an asshole. Try to work on the damage you've done. And, uh, you know, stop trying to get rewarded for the shit that you do. Do it outside of that. Few indeed are the practicing alcoholics who have any idea how irrational they are or seeing their irrationality can bear to face it. Some will be willing to term themselves problem drinkers, but cannot endure the suggestion that they are in fact mentally ill. They are abetted in this blindness by a world which does not understand the difference between sane drinking and alcoholism. Sanity is defined as soundness of mind, yet no alcoholic, soberly analyzing his destructive behavior, whether the destruction fell on the dining room furniture or his own moral fiber, can claim soundness of mind for himself. Therefore, step two is the rallying point for all of us, whether agnostic, atheist, or a former believer, we can stand together on this step. True humility and an open mind can lead us to faith, and every AA meeting is an assurance that God will restore us to sanity if we rightly relate ourselves to him. See, and I still think that that statement is true. That sentiment is true. It just needs to, again, it just needs to come from this place that you don't have to have this faith the same way that they do, or even at all for this to work. That's, that's the bottom line. They say the atheist can stand next to him, but it comes from that perception that the atheist is just a believer in hiding or waiting, hasn't quite come around to believing yet, but they will. Without accepting that some atheists, many of us, simply will not believe and do not have to to get the same result. But that, sen that sentiment remains that, that I can stand on that. I can stand in on that line with a believer or with the agnostic who's, you know, in the middle, or with the pagan, or the Satanist, or the uh, the Buddhist, 
one of my best friends goes to church every Sunday and is highly religious. Belief-wise, we have there's no fucking way we could find metaphysical common ground. But through hanging out with each other, we realize that we have we share so many of the same values. There's no reason for us not to be friends. This is the same in AA or any other program of recovery that you're choosing. And that's where I think they did do something right with this program. And I've said that before. That's something they got right. You know, if people are able to look past their own ego and see we're here for the same thing, then the belief or lack, literal lack of belief doesn't matter. It really doesn't. So up next, tradition two. For our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Personally, that first half, I think, can be completely omitted. I think that just kind of falls into the idea that everybody must believe whether that's true or not. And really what it comes down to is our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Whether or not God is a factor, that last sentence is really... Really what a lot of the success of this program comes down to, to be honest, if you really consider the tradition, I mean, the traditions are really the reason why AA exists even closely to what it was originally and why it's, you know, seemingly successful. It is a part of what makes sure nobody with like ulterior motives or power hungry folks can take over and lead this this thing into a completely different direction it does also mean that a lot of times things move slowly a part of the things that move slowly because you know the leaders are but trusted trusted servants so it's mostly a democracy when it comes to like the general services and stuff you know it took forever to get the god word and it took forever for secular meetings to become listed it took forever for a lot of this stuff to happen for folks like us that don't believe necessarily or, or the people that might be listening that are on the fence or maybe agnostic or maybe they're just tired of the christian version of god being in the meetings whatever the case is moving away from the strictly faith-based version of this program has been really difficult and that is the good and bad of this tradition. Where does AA get its direction? Who runs it? This too is a puzzler for every friend and newcomer. When told that our society has no president having authority to govern it, no treasurer who can compel the payment of any dues, no board of directors who can cast an erring member into outer darkness, when indeed no AA can give another a directive and enforce obedience, our friends gasp and exclaim this simply can't be. There must be an angle somewhere. Now that is to me a very important part of this as well, that no no AA can enforce obedience. They can uh, cannot give another a directive. I I kind of wish more people believe that to be honest, and that is kind of why I am not as aggressive with a lot of this stuff as I used to be. But that's why I will continue to go to traditional meetings. Nobody can tell me I can't. Nobody can tell me that I need to leave my version of this program out. Nobody can tell me that my version is wrong. They can try and they can use that language, but at the end of the day, they cannot bar me from a meeting if my sole purpose is to stay sober. Now, if it becomes predatory or dangerous behavior, that's different. But me just talking about the fact that I don't believe in God isn't dangerous. It's not predatory. So this this tradition means I can't be told to leave. Like, And I think that's so important. Because I've been to groups where, you know, meeting houses, meeting halls, or whatever you want to call them, where drama starts flying and people start acting like they've, you know, they've got some sort of a, a, a ultimate leadership role based in authority, you know, or 
if they feel that they can get what they want through manipulation, they will. Then this happens. I mean, we're all a bunch of manipulators <laughs> for the most part. That's how we protect our addiction until we give it up, right? So, of course, that might happen to folks that are not working a program that may be conducive to dropping some of those habits. And, of course, people are going to grab the reins to some of this and try to act like they know what the hell they're doing. This kind of stops them from being able to do that. These practical folk then read Tradition 2 and learn that the sole authority in AA is a loving God as he may express himself in the group conscience. So if you aren't aware of what the group conscience is, uh, most home groups have a business meeting that you can attend. That's the group conscience. It's not God. He's not like speaking through the folks that attend that. Uh, but it is a, an opportunity for you to voice your concerns. I, I recommend anybody. You might not win the vote, but... You know, if you feel strongly about something, it's good to just show up and let people know this is I I'm willing to attend these meetings, these after meetings, these business meetings to be a part of this because it's important to me. I used to attend every single business meeting and every single time I would put to vote that we change the Lord's Prayer because whether or not um, I'm an atheist, other people are not Christian that attend these meetings. And the Lord's Prayer is a very Christian prayer and it's sending the wrong message. I didn't want something to be omitted, just wanted it to be changed. It took a long time, but people started kind of coming around, and eventually we changed it to the Serenity Prayer, which is still a Christian prayer, but it's quite a bit quite a bit um, more, I think, faith-sensitive than the Lord's Prayer. I prefer the responsibility statement, but that's just me. Anyways, if you feel you know, that there are some changes that need to be made and you think that you can get support for that, you know, show up to these meetings, you know, put your money where your mouth is. Start. This is also where you would, you would show up to get service positions because usually they have some, some sort of a clock, you know, six months, a year. And that's the best way to be of service. If you feel that like serving the coffee or being a door greeter or whatever the position might be, if you feel that that is something that you want to do, this would be where you would go and try to get one of those positions. They dubiously ask an inex experienced AA member if this really works. The member, saying to all appearances, immediately answers, yes, it definitely does. The friend friends mutter, this looks vague, nebulous, pretty naive to them. Then they commence to watch us with speculative eyes, pick up a fragment of AA history, and soon have the solid facts. And I mean, did they? <laughs> is this a friend that's really asking this, or is this what Bill thinks people might be asking? I don't know if anybody really even cared how this program ran. I don't think it really came up until they started putting themselves out there. And once the Rockefeller situation didn't go through the way that they wanted to, they wanted to make it their own thing. But they, you know, through their own group conscience, came to the decision that it shouldn't be profitable. It should make a profit. It should keep itself running. And I know people have, you know, talked about the fact that the book sales are what keeps this thing running or an indicator that it's a for-profit organization, blah, 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 blah. If that were the case, we wouldn't have two pieces of physical literature and some pamphlets. We would have hundreds of books and we would be encouraged to buy all of the books and we'd be encouraged to sell those books to other people and it'd be a proper MLM up in this motherfucker. But it's not. You got two old ass books that at any meeting uh, typically cost you and at cost, cost. There's no profit involved. Maybe a couple dollars to keep the general offices running. Nobody's walking away from this a billionaire. Nobody's, nobody's, you know, it's not, it's not like the uh, breast cancer awareness organization that's like seriously milking a serious illness to, you know, by selling pink ribbons, getting all this money and paying everybody a super top heavy wage at the top. You know, maybe some people are making some dollars doing this, but 
if you really look at the model, <laughs> they're doing a really shit job of making it a sales model. What are these facts of AA life, which brought us to this apparently impractical principle? Nice sentence. John Doe, a good AA, moves, let us say, to Middletown, USA. Alone now, he reflects that he may not be able to stay sober or even alive unless he passes on to another alcoholic what was so freely given him. He feels a spiritual and ethical compulsion because hundreds may be suffering within reach of his help. Then, too, he misses his home group. He needs other alcoholics as much as they need him. He vi visits preachers, doctors, editors, policemen, and bartenders, with the result that Midtown now has a group, and he is the founder. Being the founder, he is at first the boss. Who else could be? Very soon, though, his assumed authority to run everything begins to be shared with the first alcoholics he has helped. At this moment, the benign dictator becomes the, f the chairman of a committee composed of his friends. These are the growing group's hierarchy of service. Self-appointed, self of course, because there is no other way. In a matter of months, AA booms in Middletown. The founder and his friends channel spirituality to newcomers, hire halls, make hospital arrangements, and entreat their wives to brew gallons of coffee. Being on the, the human side... The founder and his friends may bask a little in glory. They say to one another, perhaps it would be a good idea if we continue to keep a firm hand on AA in this town. After all, we are experienced. Besides, look at all the good we've done with these drunks. They should be grateful. True founders and their friends are sometimes wiser and more humble than this, but more often at this stage, they are not. I've seen, yeah, I've seen people start meetings, even now with all this history, uh, start meetings and think, you know, think that it makes them king shit somehow. Because a lot of us still crave that kind of stuff. You know, they still crave to be in charge, to be some sort of a leader. And they haven't been able to find that anywhere else in life. So, you know, they find it in people that are vulnerable. And that's why this stuff is so important. That's why I uh, will probably protect the traditions more than the steps sometimes. I want to see the spirit of this program, the, the actual meet, the, the fellowship, continue. Growing pains now beset the group. Panhandlers panhandle. Lonely hearts pine. Problems descend like an avalanche. Still more important, murmurs are heard in the body politics, which swell into a loud cry. Do these old-timers think they can run this group forever? Let's have an election. The founder and his friends are hurt and depressed. They rush from crisis to crisis and from member to member, pleading. But it's no use. The revolution is on. The group conscience is about to take over. Now comes the election. If the founder and his friends have served well, they may, to their surprise, be reinstated for a time. If, however, they have... Heavily resisted the rising tide of democracy, they may be summarily breached. Beached. In either case, the group now has a so-called rotating committee, very sharply limited in its authority. In no sense whatever can its members govern and direct the group. They are servants. Theirs is the sometimes thankless privilege of doing the group's chores. Headed by the chairman, they look after public relations and arrange meetings. Their treasurer, strictly accountable, takes money from the hat that is passed banks it, pays the rent and other bills, and makes a regular report at business meetings. The secretary sees that literature is on the table, looks after the phone answering services, answers the phone, the mail, and sends out notices of meetings. Such are the simple services that enable the group to function. The committee gives no spiritual advice, judges no one's conduct, issues no orders. Every one of them may be promptly eliminated at the next election if they try this. And so they make the belated discovery that they are really servants, not senators. These are universal experiences. Thus, throughout AA, does the group conscious decree the terms upon which its leaders shall serve. And, and seriously, again, I think this is a, a big reason why, for the most part, there hasn't been a huge departure from the original meeting styles. Because you, when practiced, really, there isn't a, a way to move away from it. Everybody has to agree. And small, subtle things can slowly take hold. My secular meeting that I go to, a lot of stuff has changed over the time, uh, over the years. The 
I asked that we start reading a small excerpt from the God Word um, directly from Bill Wilson saying that everybody's welcome in AA because I think that was important that it came from him. It fit our meeting and it was for secular people. That got approved and then over time that reading has kind of morphed into a much more smaller and truncated version of it. It's still there, still part of the groups, but it wouldn't have happened had I not presented that to the group and everybody voted on it. Even if I wanted it to stay original, it, that wasn't what's, what was important. Everybody had to agree. And if I didn't get my way, then I just had to accept that. You know, that's just how this works. And that curbs a lot of people's egos. It really does. Now, I've seen people try to campaign for certain things in some meetings, and it's weird. It gets, it gets really uncomfortable when that kind of stuff happens. So, you know, don't, don't do that if you can help it. But be aware that if you start a meeting, let's say you start a new secular meeting, even though it's not technically AA, traditional AA, it is still a part of the main hub. And while your group conscious may decide that they don't want to read the big book, and you might feel that some things out of the big book are important, that doesn't mean that later down the road, things might not change. And that doesn't mean that, um, you know, you're not welcome there or something. I think I think what happens is folks start taking this kind of stuff really personally. They didn't get their way. Their egos get involved again. That all plays a factor in some people taking this kind of stuff personally. But be aware, if you have a meeting and people are showing up for the business meeting and participating in that, that's an amazing thing. They, they're they invested in the in the group at that point. You have a group now, and it has a group conscience that makes sure nothing gets derailed or gets sent off into one person's own version of this program. This brings us straight to the question, does AA have a real leadership? Most emphatically, the answer is yes, notwithstanding the apparent lack of it. Let's turn again to the uh, deposed founder and his friends. (laughs) I really think they're talking about themselves here at the very first, like, we're going to do everything. And then the rest of the new members are like, no, man, that's not, that doesn't make any sense. Like kind of like with the pushback from Jim Burwell. I think Jim Burwell was a a pretty fairly big hand in how the group conscience slowly came about. He was not happy about the God stuff that got put in this and he pushed back pretty heavily. Um, But not, you know, not everybody agreed with him. If he, if they had, this thing may have been completely shaped, completely different. In fact, a lot of people thought he was going to drink because of how against the God nonsense, as he put it, was put into it. But if it wasn't for that group conscious, if it wasn't for people like Jim Burwell, I don't think there'd be even any attempt at coming to the aid of the atheist, even though they, they missed the mark on it. I think even that would have been admitted if it wasn't for Jim Burwell and for the group conscience. God as we understand it, higher, you know, higher power instead of just God, non-Christian as much as possible, even though it's it's obviously written by Christians. It, this all came from other people in the group that were like, we need to tone this back. I think if this book were written now, it would it would look so vastly different, honestly. But people like that made sure that it was at least somewhat sensitive to that kind of stuff. Let's turn again to the opposed founder and his friends. What becomes of them? As their grief and anxiety wear away, a subtle change begins. Ultimately, they divide into two classes known as known in AA slang as elder statesmen and bleeding deacons. I mean, they're only really known that because they've named them that, but that's like they preemptively named them that before there was even groups. The elder statesman is the one who sees the wisdom of the group's decision, who holds no resentment over his reduced status, whose judgment, fortified by considerable experience, is sound, and who is willing to sit quietly on the sidelines, patiently awaiting developments. It's a lot of qualifiers to be an elder statesman. 
The bleeding deacon is one who is just as surely convinced that the group cannot get along without him, who constantly connives for re-election to office, and who continues to be consumed with self-pity. A few hemorrhage so badly that, drained of all AA spirit and principle, they get drunk. At times, the AA landscape seems to be jittered with bleeding forms. Near, nearly every old-timer old in our society has gone through this process in some degree. Happily, most of them survive and live to become elder statesmen. They become the real and permanent leadership of AA. Theirs is the quiet opinion, the sure knowledge and humble example that resolve a crisis. When sorely perplexed, the group inevitably turns to them for advice. They become the voice of the group conscience. In fact, these are the true voice of Alcoholics Anonymous. They do not drive by mandate, they lead by example. This is the experience which has led us to the conclusion that our group conscience, well advised by its elders, will be in the long run wiser than any single leader. I, also, I honestly think that a lot of what just was read there is a reason why some of these groups have not progressed into any kind of modern day future stuff. What I mean by that is a lot of groups still do a thing where they um, they pass the, the share on male, female, male, female, male, female, when, when the group's being ran. And what's problematic about that is we've reached an age where it's pretty clear that not everybody has a male or female identifier just specifically because of how they look. And one, the fact that that might be of consideration irritates a lot of people. Like, why should I care? They should get over it. If they look like a woman, I'm going to call them a woman. I'm going to call on them as a woman w without even considering that they could just call on people. They don't have to make it a thing that somebody else has to get over. I mean, the whole ordeal of this process is working a program in a way that doesn't make you an asshole, right? Like if you're just purposefully doing something because you could you could give a shit about considering others, that's problematic. And that's older way of thinking. And that, that comes a lot from elder statesman types. We had a reading that um, we had at the beginning of our meetings that was very gender specific. And then we had also a phone list that went around that was gen gender specified at first. And then they did away with the gender specificity and then they, they passed around a single sheet with everybody's names on it. Now, the first half was fine, right? We all talked about the fact that maybe we should make this more gender neutral and more inclusive. We are a group that starts our meetings with the fact that we are inclusive. So an attempt at that would be helpful. So we tried to make it a little bit more inclusive without changing the message based on the fact that the old literature doesn't give a shit about gender. Women are, you know, a specific thing and they don't deviate. And men are a specific thing and they don't deviate. And the book makes that clear where that you know that thinking comes from and at first there was pushback against the the naming the just the word and verbiage that we were using from those folks from folks that have been around the meetings for a long time and they're you know quote-unquote elder statesmen i feel like it went against progress uh, a lot you know we weren't coming from a place where we wanted to completely change aa at all we were coming from a place where we didn't have to say he or she specifically we could make it neutral and everybody would then we wouldn't have to worry about it you know, and I think it was as simple as changing, you know, gender pronouning to just anyone, literally the word anyone to be inclusive. And then that went into how the the uh, the phone list was written. Now, this this is where I became an elder statesman and kind of like pushed back, I guess, against what was seen as progress. Now, I get where a lot of people were coming from. They were saying that the, the phone list should be um, it shouldn't be gender specified because then we're making people choose to very binarily fall into a category. And it was quickly pointed out the reason why the phone list 
had been gender separate to begin with was because when it was uh, a one an all-inclusive gender, like, I mean, if it was just all-inclusive without mixed gendering, then I feel like a lot of people are like, what the fuck are you even talking about? This is, it's going to make sense, I guess. Basically, we all pointed out the fact that the reason why it was originally the way it was is because some men were taking it upon themselves to go down the phone list and start calling women. And it happened often enough that the group conscious said we should move away from that and it should be gender separate. We should make sure that men get phone lists for men and women get phone lists for women. It wasn't because we didn't care about other people's gender identity or that we didn't have like a sense of um, understanding. And I get that some people are going to find that offensive. But ultimately, the one thing has to trump the other. The safety of our group has has to trump the potential feelings that might be hurt. That, of course, created a lot of tension amongst the women in the group that felt that, well, I know when someone's trying to, you know, come on to me, or I know how to defend myself, or I know how to protect myself, and I don't need people telling me how to do that. And that's great. I fuck yeah, you know, strong women are awesome. But that I feel diminishes the fact that a lot of people come into these meetings very vulnerable. That's why there is a 13th step, because there are predatory men that come into these meetings and they take advantage of women who are in a bad state. We, I'm not making that up just to make women look bad. This isn't a thing that's just designed. It wasn't something that came along just to say that women are weak creatures. It's not It's not based around that. It's based around very factual evidence that men predominantly will take advantage of women who are vulnerable. And it was weird that there was a lot of pushback with that. Ultimately, I think we just did away with the phone list in general. And if people want a phone list, then we write one in by hand and just hand that out, which I think is actually a little bit more. I think the message that comes along with that is a lot better. But that initial, no, we should be respecting all these people and just putting this list um, together with everybody's gender so we're not hurting any feelings. And then having that result in the kind of weird, I mean, this just took three weeks of three months of meetings. We, we didn't come to a decision for three months on this. I was, I am not a type to kind of like go back and forth. This seemed really obvious. And that's why I guess I was more of a bleeding deacon at that point, because it seemed obvious to keep this separate for the safety of people in the group that may not have the capability at that time to strongly uh, resist a predatory man. That's where I was coming from. But ultimately they ended up just doing away with the phone list and we spent three months getting to that result. So progress is slow and it can be that you are both the bleeding deacon and the uh, elder statesman or whatever. I don't think that's even that black and white, um, but you're going to find yourself of the generation that's defending something that maybe seems outdated. I think, you know, is what I'm really saying. And it's good to be able to remove ego and take a step back. And if the group decides, no, we don't want to do this, accept that. I feel like I've said that already kind of before, but it was interesting um, being able to put that into, to me, a, an actual story that made sense because there, there were, you know, there were people that there was a guy who started the meeting that he kind of was coming from a place of always reminding people that he was the one that started the meeting. And, you know, without that, it wouldn't have happened. And he did all the work and it, he had a lot of attachment to that. And it can get to people's heads, man. It can become a sense of like importance. And that's not what all this is about. None of this is about that. We're here to provide um, a way for people to uh, feel comfortable for an hour talking about their alcoholism or whatever it is that they identify that as. 
uh, just to see a room full of people who are struggling or maybe getting over struggles that were similar or whatever, seeing that some people are staying sober for 30 years or five years or three months or one day or whatever. Not to, not to inflate your Back to the reading. When AA was only three years old, an event occurred demonstrating this principle. One of the first members of the AA, entirely contrary to his own desires, was obliged to conform to group opinion. Here is the story in his words. One day I was doing a 12-step job at a hospital in New York. The proprietor, Charlie, summoned me to his office. Billy said, I think it's a shame that you are fin financially so hard up. All around you, these drunks are getting well and making money. But you're giving this work full time and you're broke. It isn't fair. <laughs> I bet Bill felt the same way. Charlie fished in his desk and came up with an old financial statement. Handing it to me, he continued, This shows the kind of money the hospital used to make back in the 1920s. Thousands of dollars a month. It should be doing just as well now, and it would, if only you'd help me. So why don't you move your work in here? I'll give you an office, a decent drawing, a decent drawing account, and a very healthy slice of the profits. Three years ago, when my head doctor Silkworth began to tell me of the idea of helping drunks by spirituality, I thought it was a crackpot stuff, but I've changed my mind. Someday, this bunch of ex-drunks of yours will fill Madison Square Garden, and I don't see why you should uh, starve meanwhile. What I propose is perfectly ethical. You can become a lay therapist and more successful than anybody in the business. In interestingly, yeah, I think we could f certainly fill a, a few Madison Square Gardens. The... I mean, the big, the big, huge um, conventions are giant stadiums full of people, like the, a huge stadium. I can't remember where. Completely full of people. I could, I could see us filling that up. This is interesting because, yes, at one point, Bill could have made a lot of money off of this. He really could have. And it took a life of its own. If, if it hadn't, if this group conscious group think thing hadn't occurred, I think he, I think he honestly would have. Because he was broke. He was tired of being broke. He came from a background where you were supposed to earn a profit. You're supposed to make money. Um, but I think that he saw more value in the long term. You know, he didn't die penniless, but he wasn't rich. I mean, you know, I guess wealth has different values. Uh, but he wasn't, you know, he wasn't a Rockefeller. You know, he, he just he just did this, I guess, to do it. Or he just realized that he didn't have a choice. You know, if he was going to stay sober, he was going to have to participate in the group that now was doing its own thing. The other thing I want to point out real quick, 13 years later, the man was still doing 12-step calls. He was still going to hospitals and shit, doing 12-step work. That, to me, says more about him and his ties to the potential want of finances than anything. You know what I mean? He, he was doing the actual work of the program 13 years later. That's amazing to me. I think a, a lot of people get settled into their ways and they, they stop getting hungry for helping folks. And this is an example of somebody that probably suffered from that himself. And still found ways to get out there and do 12-step work, you know? I was bowled over. There were a few twinges of conscience until I saw how really ethical Charlie's proposal was. There was nothing wrong, whatever, with becoming a lay therapist. I thought of Lewis coming home exhausted from the department store each day, only to cook supper for a house full of drunks who weren't paying board. I thought of the large sum of money still owing my Wall Street creditors. I thought of a few of my alcoholic friends who were making as much money as ever. Why shouldn't I do as well as they? I think this is um, a lot of where his depression came from and how, how dark his this period was when he wrote this book was the finances. It was a lot of stress and, and a lot of pressure for somebody who at this point had been a part of, you know, th what, four, well, 13 years since the big book had writ been written and so three or four years before that. So 16 years, 17 years of his life dedicated to this. It, it would get to anybody, I think. Like, why am I still... 
why am I doing all this good and nothing good's happening to me? And maybe that wasn't the case, but I'm just saying that this was a period where he was really darkly depressed. So it would make sense that it was tied to finances. Although I asked Charlie for a little time to consider it, my own mind was made up. Racing back to Brooklyn on the subway, I had a seeming flash of, of divine guidance. It says seeming, even though the flash was probably similar to his other flashes. It was only a single sentence, but most convincing. In fact, it came right out of the Bible. A voice kept saying to me, the laborer is worthy of his hire. Arriving home, I found Lois cooking as usual while three drunks looked hungrily on from the kitchen door. I drew her aside and told the glorious news. She looked interested, but not as excited as I thought she should be. It was meeting night, although none of the uh, alcoholics we boarded seemed to get sober. Some others had. With their wives, they crowded into our downstairs parlor. Uh, at once, I burst into the story of my opportunity. Never shall I forget their impassive faces and the steady gaze they focused upon me. With waning enthusiasm, my tail trailed off to the end. There was a long silence. I guess he didn't really give specifics about the time period, so this could have been early on in the program. Anyways, almost timidly, one of my friends began to speak. We know how hard up you are, Bill. It bothers, it bothers us a lot. We've often wondered what we might do about it. But I think I speak for everyone here when I say that what you now propose bothers us an awful lot more. The speaker's voice grew more confident. Don't you realize, he went on, that you can never become a, a professional? As generous as Charlie has been to us, don't you see that we can't tie this thing up with his hospital or any other? You tell us that Charlie's proposal is ethical. Sure, it's, it's ethical, but what we've got won't run on ethics alone. It has to be better. Sure, Charlie's idea is good, but it isn't good enough. This is a matter of life and death, Bill, and nothing but the best will do. Challengingly, my friends looked at me as their spokesman continued. Bill, haven't you often said right here in this meeting that sometimes the good is the enemy of the best? Well, this is a plain case of it. You can't do this thing to us. So spoke the group conscience. The group was right and I was wrong. The voice on the subway was not the voice of God. Here was the true voice welling up out of my friends. I listened and thank God I obeyed. And, you know, that's just going to make me think, well, you've named a lot of stuff as God, bud. And it turned out to just be some other thing. Maybe you should consider that in your, you know, sense of belief. Anyways, I guess that's not important. Ultimately, the important thing is, is that, again, this program would have been vastly different if Bill had just run off and did whatever he wanted to. And I have a feeling that hospital meeting, now that I'm really thinking about it, was probably a little bit more in line with like the Rockefeller thing that um, I haven't done a bunch of research on. But I mean, I've it's it's a passed down sort of like bit of history that there was an opportunity for this to become a professional thing as opposed to what it ended up becoming. And there was a lot of money on the table and it ended up falling through that. I mean, yeah, of course, people are going to feel like that's providence in a faith based system. Whatever the actual reasoning was, it, it ended up becoming the best thing that happened to this program. And I think, you know, speaking of the members that went on and continued the work of this program, spoke a lot more about how desperate folks were and how valuable this thing has really been for people. And it really couldn't have happened without the, tra the traditions. So again, I mean, yeah, the, the steps make me sober um, and keep me in recovery and the traditions make sure that the, the, the way of life inside this program stays. And that's why I have hesitations with some of the other groups that spot, you know, that jump up some of these other sobriety networks, some of which are led by one person, you know, there's a big one on TikTok. This guy's all over the place. I, I ended up emailing him just to get an idea because you have to like gain access via email. And now it's just a spam fest. Like I'm just getting spammed with all this email stuff. And some of the things he says are fairly controversial to my thinking. I am immediately skeptical. 100% skeptical of a one-person master mentor, as he names himself, group doing this. Like one person ran program. You know, it's a big sales sheet. The first thing you see 
it's all kinds of stuff that's on sale you know the the big the big uh this can solve this can teach you my one drink method and and you'll start to think of water instead of alcohol and and it, it it's valued at seven thousand dollars but today only at sixty four dollars and that price never changes you know that kind of stuff that's what this could have been that's what aa could have been S snake oil salesman shit you know maybe this program works i have no idea it's only been a year, I think, since that dude really started. And so there's no way to tell. I mean, you could go all in. It does offer an alternative to, you know, 12-step work and other kind of work. You know, things like smart recovery and life ring have shown longevity and real change and real results. But smart's not ran by a single person. It has a home office and stuff that, that is run by people. But the program itself isn't changed by any one person. Same with life ring, as far as I can tell. And it, it just is interesting to me to really think about where this program could have ended up if not for the traditions. So that's part of why I keep coming back specifically to AA. Even if I'm not really doing meetings as often and sometimes I'm at odds with the program, there is just a lot of power in how they went about making this as democratic as possible when they were in positions to not do that. Like they, they definitely could have made a shit ton of money off of this thing, seriously. And the fact that they didn't, like that also has me come back. Um, and defend it at times when people say that it's a cult or that it's money seeking or whatever the other you know things is that they say. Anyways, that is step two, tradition two. And I hope uh, everybody enjoyed this as much as me. I am really liking going through the 12 by 12. I'm glad I decided to do this. Uh, it's It's, I think, a great way to really expand on the real meat of this program outside of that big book. And so with that, uh, again, I'll just remind everybody, my socials are, uh, you can go to Facebook and find my, my blog page at an atheist reads the big book of AA. You can find me on Facebook and the group as atheists in AA. Uh, sorry for not getting that correct since I made the group. That's just how my brain works. Sometimes I, decide that a thing is a thing and I and I forget to even double check it. Um, you can also email me directly directly at oneatheistinaa at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at an atheist in. And you know, I don't really do anything with Instagram. So I, I don't think I'm going to start. I think I'm going to stop giving that handle out because I think it's um, unfair to really give out a handle to something I just don't participate with much. Um, you can find me on TikTok at uh, the beardo. That's the B-E-I-R-D-O. I actually made it without thinking about the name. That's my like nickname for like gaming and stuff. So that's why it's so much of a departure of the other ones. Anyways, you can find me on those socials. Um, the email is the best way to have long form conversations with me. And if you um, and if it if it's something that ends up becoming fairly consistent or it becomes an interesting conversation that I want to talk about, I'll ask before sharing anything. It will never share details. I'll never share names or identifiers. Everything that you relay to me is is purely anonymous and co uh, confidential as far as I'm concerned. So let's have a conversation. If there's anything in these that you feel I am just completely off base on, please let me know. If you like the new, you know, the way that this format is continuing, please let me know that too. Um, if you'd like to see me integrate anything else, if there's literature that you think is out there that might be an interesting read later on down the road, definitely let me know that. And uh, if you just want to say hi and you just want to let me know if this podcast has done something for you, I've really appreciated those. Those things are those those emails have been life changing that I've gotten from the few people that have done that. And so I can't thank everybody enough for listening. I really appreciate it. Thank you for keeping me sober one more day. <laughs>